the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us live from Seattle. Joining us for the next couple of weeks, KGNW 820 The Word, our sister station uh, up there in the north. Uh, today we're going to talk with John Chastine. He's the author of Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. The book is published by Gateway. It's his first book. And he writes about how half the battle is identifying the symptoms and dealing with the evidence of hurt, but going much deeper is the other half of the battle. We'll talk with him about that later this hour. We'll also take a look at the Electoral College and whether or not it's the bulwark that we need or if it should be jettisoned, as some are suggesting, that and much more today on Live from Seattle and the Georgine Rice Show. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. President Trump is warning that he's going to veto the defense bill unless social media protections in Section 230 are terminated. We'll talk later in the program about what Section 230 is and how it relates to um, social media. But the president tweeted late Tuesday that he's going to veto the National Defense Authorization Act unless Congress repeals that section of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Uh, Critics say it unfairly shields social media platforms from liability over items posted on their platforms. While these um, opponents have been vocal with tech uh, behemoths like Twitter and Facebook, they should no longer be shielded as a neutral platform when they operate more like a publisher. Well, the criticism seemed to reach its tipping point during the Hunter Biden scandal in the weeks prior to the presidential election. The New York Post ran an explosive report that purported to show emails from Hunter Biden that linked his father to his Ukraine business dealings. His father, of course, one of the two major presidential candidates. Republican Senators Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, as well as Josh Hawley, they called on the heads of Twitter and Facebook at the time to testify. This is election interference, and we're 19 days out from an election at the time, Cruz from Texas said. It has no precedent in the history of democracy. The Senate Judiciary Committee wants to know what the, uh, well, is going on. Well, Trump, who has refused to concede the election thus far and his legal team investigating allegations of widespread voter fraud, has maintained a fraught relationship with these companies despite attracting 88 million followers on his Twitter handle. Well, Section 230, which is a liability shielding gift from the U.S. to big tech, the only companies in America that have it, um, Corporate welfare, he refers to it, is a serious threat to our national security and election integrity. Our country can never be safe and secure if we allow it to stand. The president tweeted, therefore, if the very dangerous and unfair Section 230 is not completely terminated as part of the National Defense Authorization Act or NDAA, uh, I will be forced to unequivocally veto the bill when sent to the very beautiful uh, resolute desk. Take back America now. Thank you. End tweet, end quote. Well, in other developments, Facebook and Twitter took some heat over the Hunter Biden story during the hearing. Dorsey admitted their actions were wrong. Both Dorsey and Zuckerberg, they defended Section 220, 230, rather, but they signaled openness to change during the censorship hearing. 
well, whether or not they're open, it may come upon them. Representative Bud introduced a bill to limit big tech's Section 23 immunity with the censorship outcry. Meanwhile, the FCC chairman is proceeding with rulemaking to clarify Section 230 relating to social media companies. Well, a whistleblower says that a conservative law firm that the United States Postal Service threw out and backdated ballots before the election. Well, this conservative law firm says that several whistleblowers from the United States Postal Service have come forward, alleging that thousands of ballots in some states were backdated tampered with or tossed out ahead of the 2020 election to the disservice of President Trump, despite the Justice Department announcing on Tuesday it's found no proof of widespread voter fraud. Well, the uh, Amistad Project of the Thomas More Society, which is uh, forged ahead with an independent investigation of alleged voter fraud in several key battleground states that Trump lost, has claimed that the FBI asked them to turn over their findings to the Los Angeles field office. The FBI told Fox News that it's their standard practice to neither confirm nor deny the existence of uh, investigations. As such, we will decline further comment. Well, on Tuesday, the Amistad Project said that multiple whistleblowers had in fact come forward uh, and uh, lobbed serious accusations of multi-state illegal efforts by the United States Postal Service workers to influence the election in at least three of six swing states. Details include potentially uh, hundreds of thousands of completed absentee ballots being transported across three state lines and a trailer filled with ballots disappearing in Pennsylvania, according to the group. Now, again, this is an ongoing investigation. Meanwhile, a Michigan uh, poll observer says the military ballots looked like Xerox copies, and they were all for Biden, his observation. And a Fulton County uh, cut corners in the second recount, according to Georgia's Secretary of State. Now, the consequence of that action isn't altogether clear at this point. Meanwhile, former President Obama slammed defund the police in an online interview, saying you lose a big audience the minute you say it. Well, the former president has some harsh criticism for the project, the movement, if you will, in an online interview scheduled to be released in three parts this week. You lost a big audience the minute you say it, Obama said of the anti-police effort, adding that snappy slogans may draw attention, but it makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes that you want done. Obama made the remarks in a conversation with Peter Hamby. He's the host of Snapchat's Good Luck America. Part one of the three-part Obama interview is scheduled to be posted at 6 a.m. Eastern time today with the other parts to that to be released Thursday and Friday, according to Axios. In an interview, the uh, former president accused anti-police activists of trying to please one another rather than push for policy changes that might appeal to a broader range of the public. The key is deciding uh, you do you want to actually get something done or do you want to feel good among people you actually agree with, Obama told Hambly during the uh, interview. Now, he has been roundly criticized by those on the left for making those comments in which they uh, uh, suggested that they want precisely what they're asking for. Well, the former president also said that white, uh, the white population fears the African-American community will get out of control with police reform. I'm not sure what evidence he's presenting for that. There's wide support for police reform, which is quite different from defund the police. And United and, Air and American Airlines have halted nonstop flights to Shanghai. PayPal has launched a new crowdsourced fundraising platform, the Generosity Network. And Hewlett Packard, uh, Packard rather, is leaving California for Texas in a headquarters jump. One can only imagine the reason behind that move.
Well, NASDAQ is seeking mandatory quotas on their boards and others or risk being delisted. The company filed a proposal on Tuesday with the Securities and Exchange Commission that, if approved, will require all companies on the exchange to disclose the breakdowns of their boards by race, gender and sexual orientation. Companies that do not comply could be delisted or kicked off the exchange. The proposal would also require most NASDAQ-listed companies to have at least two diverse directors or, if they cannot meet the mandate, to explain why not. That could include one board member who is a female, one who is either an uh, an un- underrepresentative, uh, underrepresented rather, racial minority or LGBTQ. Foreign companies and smaller companies would have additional flexibility in satisfying this requirement with two female directors. Hugh Hewitt points out that as the SEC approval is required, state action seems implicated, and so do a host of constitutional issues. Watch that space closely as this court is suspicious of quotas, which um, this rule would impose. Also, the Wall Street Journal weighed in and the editorial board saying, like much of corporate America today, the NASDAQ is virtue signaling at the expense of someone else. This is far from its reason for being, which is a marketplace to raise money while spreading the benefits of capitalism and corporate ownership. Imposing its own identity politics on some three thousand listed companies, medals in corporate management, and will harm the economic growth and job creation. A free society looks at the skills and the talents of individuals, not their physical appearance. Well, Project Veritas has recorded months of CNN editorial calls, and in the final call, James O'Keefe informs Jeff Zucker he's been listening on Twitter. From CNN, who gleefully played a secret recording of First Lady Melania Trump, legal experts say this may be a felony. We've uh, referred it to law enforcement. In yesterday's call, Zucker emphasized they need to go after Trump and Lindsey Graham even harder. Well, Attorney General Barr says that he's not seen uh, a fraud on the scale that would change the outcome of the election. Mr. Barr told the Associated Press that allegations of particularized fraud with some of the potentially uh, covered uh, Votes, a few thousand of them, are being explored, but President Trump is down 150,000 votes in Michigan, 80,000 in Pennsylvania, 20,000 in Wisconsin. And as for the idea that voting machines were compromised, Mr. Barr said the feds have looked into that, and so far we haven't seen anything to substantiate that. Eric Erickson points out he's a resident of Georgia. He describes himself as an elections lawyer. He explains why he believes the machines were not hacked. And a Georgia official is asking the president to condemn threats against election workers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're also simulcasting in Seattle, live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word, our sister station to the north. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. I'm sitting in for the next few days. KGNW 820, The Word. We're glad to have you down here in the South. Well, the United Kingdom has approved the Pfizer BioNTech coronavirus vaccine for national distribution. This is the first Western country to do so, to authorize the vaccine for use by the general population. Well, the health authorities there in the UK, they've ordered 40 million doses. That's enough to inoculate 20 million people because the vaccine is administered in two shots. Uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock told the BBC that around 800,000 doses will arrive in the country next week, and they're going to be distributed through Britain's state-funded health system, the National Health Service. Uh, Help is on the way with the vaccine, and we can now say that with certainty rather than 
with all the caveats, he said. Well, depending on the speed of vaccine production and other regulatory authorizations, the UK might receive between four to five million doses of the vaccine by the end of the year. People familiar with the matter told the Wall Street Journal that's likely to be the case. And the vaccine will likely be distributed first among healthcare workers, nursing home residents and staff and other vulnerable populations expected to be inoculated in the coming weeks and months. Other nations will potentially be studying the UK to learn from its distribution efforts. Well, here in the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration is working to approve the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine for distribution here. Authorization will likely come by December 10th at the earliest Trump administration officials, they've privately criticized the FDA for not authorizing the vaccine faster than the UK, saying it's crazy to imagine the European Union uh, may approve a vaccine developed in the United States before us, a senior official involved in the approval process uh, said. Well, while Russia and China have both approved vaccines for coronavirus, neither has waited for human trials to demonstrate those vaccine efficacy. Um, I would much rather wait for the, the trials before the vaccines are made available here. And again, for the one, it may be as early as December the 10th. The other was um, uh, was requested of the FDA earlier this week. So my guess is we'll hear from that one sometime after December 10th as well. Meanwhile, a panel of independent experts advising the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the public meeting on Tuesday, they voted that healthcare workers and residents here, residents of long-term care facilities, will be the first to receive the long-awaited coronavirus vaccine once it's approved here. Well, the recommendation now must be approved by the CDC director, that's Robert, Dr. Robert Redfield, before the vaccine can be distributed to states and ultimately to groups part of the Phase 1A distribution plan. Well, the plan to distribute the vaccine to healthcare workers and long-term care residents is also dependent on the authorization from the Food and Drug Administration, which still has to approve an application of emergency use. Now, following the FDA approval, the first Americans uh, could receive a jab as early as this month. So we're not too far behind the U.K., um, and we have a very similar uh, way of determining who is eligible for those shots. Uh, also, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced new guidelines for how long someone has to be um, who has been exposed rather to the coronavirus should quarantine to ensure that they haven't uh, contracted it, reducing the previous two week quarantine time to seven to 10 days in some cases. And while a 14-day quarantine is still the best way to reduce the risk of spreading COVID, the CDC, said, uh, CDC rather says it's approving two acceptable alternatives. If a person has developed no symptoms of the virus, their quarantine after being exposed to the pathogen can end after 7 to 10 days. Hey, you're listening to Live from Seattle and the Georgine Rice Show, simulcasting. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. John Chastine. He's also a pastor and author of Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. We'll be back with that in just a few moments. Uh, I should uh, mention, by the way, that the CDC is continuing to re uh, refine their guidance to prevent transmission and project uh, Americans. That's according to Dr. Henry Walk. He's the CDC's incident manager for the coronavirus response. And he says reducing the length of the quarantine may make it easier for people to follow the critical public health uh, action by reducing the economic hardship associated with these longer periods of time. So, again, we're moving in. Uh, a little bit different direction, according to the CDC. Well, here in the state of Oregon, the governor is implementing coronavirus restrictions for 25 extreme risk counties. We're a little bit fickle here in the state of Oregon. Uh, the rules change. They've gone up and down. The governor finally announced at Thanksgiving that one size fits all is not a good approach. I think most Oregonians knew that 
before it was applied, but nonetheless, better late than never. So uh, we'll talk a bit more about that in the uh, in the program. Governor Brown implementing coronavirus restrictions for 25 what she calls extreme risk counties. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment, along with our sister station live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're also streaming live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. So glad to have you with us. Well, in life, there are a few things that we could uh, label as absolutes, but there is one thing that we can count on, and that's that everyone will have hurt in their life at one time or another. I wouldn't have to ask uh, and wait too long for any one of us to come up with a singular or multiple hurts. Well, in his debut book, Half the Battle, my next guest, pastor and university president, Dr. John Chastine, he looks at both Old and New Testament examples of people whom God invited to begin the healing process by confronting their secret pain. Uh, we're going to talk about um, what the half of the battle is, what the other half is with Dr. Chastine in just a moment. But again, he is the president of the King's University of South Lake, Texas. He and his wife, Michelle, also serve as the lead pastors of Victory Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. His greatest passion is to empower and equip the local church to live, move, and be in the fullness of Christ. And we are delighted to have you with us to talk about your book, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It, it truly is an honor that that uh, you would uh, consider having me on. I'm just uh, it, I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, you're certainly welcome. Now, the phrase "half the battle" is rather common uh, to us. It's sort of an offhand uh, comment that we often mm-hmm. made. How are you using it as the title of this book? Half the battle implies that there's another half uh, that that it also yeah. needs to be considered, or that is taking place. Explain a little bit the title, "Half the Battle." Absolutely. Really, the the idea is that we we spend most of our lives lives looking at the battle in front of us, whether it's a financial battle, whether it's a relational battle, maybe it's a marriage or a relationship with a child or something we're trying to overcome that seems tangible. And I begin to to see that many times the battles that we face on the outside are first needing to be dealt with on the inside. And I kind of make this parallel with the children of Israel as they leave mm-hmm. Egypt and they wander in the wilderness and they're on the banks of the river of the Jordan River and they're about to go into the promised land. And the promised land became, you know, we think that the promised land is the land flowing with milk and honey. And it, and it was, but it was also a land filled with battles. And they went to fight Jericho and Ai and the North, northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. And the, that was going to be their battles. But I found, um, and we can talk through it, but I found on the banks of the Jordan, that was only going to be half the battle. But on the, there was a battle on the banks of the Jordan River that God led them through that was going to be a battle on the inside. And I begin to see that many times before God helps us defeat the walls of Jericho and watch the walls of Jericho come tumbling down in our lives, he first wants to deal with the walls in our heart. And many times there's something on the inside that God wants to deal with before we defend and, and, and defeat the enemies on the outside. You point out that uh, when the children of Israel made their way across the river, they probably sighed a collective sigh of relief. Finally, we have entered into our rest. There is a battle ahead, but what happened before the battle was as significant and was preparation for what was to come uh, that's that's difficult for it. Most of us don't want to think about a battle, one in particular right. that is internal. And yet God right. called them yeah. to that very thing in order for them to confront the enemy. Yeah, and it, it really was, this happened in this really pivotal verse for me 
where kind of this book really got birthed was in one verse in the Bible. And it was a verse reading through the Bible every year. It's a verse that I've probably read numerous times, but it never jumped off the page of me like it did this time. And it's in Joshua chapter five, verse nine. And in that verse, it says, then the Lord said to Joshua today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so what he's saying to them is before you go to fight Jericho, um, he, they crossed the Jordan river. And just before this verse, the, the Lord tells them to circumcise themselves. Now, what a weird thing. What an odd instruction. But you have to be reminded of what circumcision was. Mm-hmm. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. So but what God was saying to them is before you go to battle on the outside, I want you to be reminded on the inside of who you are. You're a child of God. And I want you to be reminded of this. And in this verse, he says, I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So you've circumcised yourself. And now that you've circumcised yourself, and in the New Testament, we know that it's not a circumcision of the flesh, it's a circumcision of the heart. And so you begin to see this parallel of God saying, before you go to battle, I want to circumcise your heart. And immediately after circumcision, it says, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And what struck me was these people that the scriptures are are referring to is the next generation. These people have never even stepped foot in Egypt. And yet he says, I've, remo- re- I've rolled away mm-hmm. the reproach. Now, the re- reproach in, in Hebrew means shame and scorn. And so he says, before you go to battle, there's a battle on the inside of you, and you've never felt the sting of a whip on your back, but you've grown up seeing the scars on your parents' back. And so there, it became this generational shame that they carried of slavery. And what God was saying to them is, hey, you're not a slave anymore. You're a child of God. And I want to remind you of this by going through the rhythm of circumcision and reminding you of your covenant relationship with, with, with me. And so, so maybe the battles that we face on the inside are only half the battle. And mm-hmm. if we keep trying to fight the battles without being reminded of who we are on the inside, then we're just going to keep fighting and banging our heads against the wall and walking around walls that never fall I think that the reason the walls of Jericho fell without them having to raise a single weapon except their mouth was because they had fought a much bloodier battle on the inside. They allowed the process of circumcision uh, and they were reminded of who they are as children of God. And then when they faced the battles before them in the natural, God fought those battles for them because they were reminded that they were his children. One of the things you pointed out, and I really appreciate it, I thought about circumcision, the the physical and the spiritual circumcision differently. They were in a very yeah. vulnerable position um, by, yeah. by doing that. It was a very painful thing. And when we um, begin to do the work that God intends to do in us, we need to be vulnerable and it can produce pain, but there's a glory on the other side of that pain when we we act in obedience. Yeah. What a, what a bizarre analogy, you know, as a pastor, <laughs> I think, man, that's not really easy to preach about God, to get up on a platform and talk about circumcision and go there. And and it's an awkward thing to talk about. But really, when you think about it, it's one of the most beautiful symbolisms you could ever imagine. Because imagine with me grown men (laughs) walking up to Joshua for circumcision. You talk about an awkward moment. But but what that is, is it was a moment of vulnerability. It was a moment of, of me having to be vulnerable with myself and, you know, pardon the, the bluntness of this, but they had to expose themselves, right? It was painful. It wasn't comfortable. 
But this is the same process when we allow God to circumcise our hearts. We have to be vulnerable to someone else. We have to expose the painful position of our hearts. It's, it hurts. It's, it's sensitive. We don't want to do it. And so really, as awkward as, of an, as, a, as an analogy as it is, it's actually a really, really beautiful picture of the circumcision of the heart and the process God takes us through to do that. Our natural tendency is to want to bury the very things that are most painful to us that God wants to expose in order that there might be healing. Your next chapter really focuses on this this idea of burying things that, uh, you know, they they decay, they decompose. <laughs> there, there's uh, yes, there's a problem yes. with allowing things to fester. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And really, a big chapter that I deal with of what we do with it, the it, what is the it? I kind of go through the process of of boiling down, so to speak, a lot of the pains and hurts that we have really boils down many times to rejection. And this idea that um, someone who should have loved us rejected us and someone who should have protected me, a father or a mother or a boss, somebody that was there to be my protector actually ended up abusing me. And so we end up being, we end up experiencing rejection and we, we have options of what we can do with this rejection. And, and that's what you're referring to is these things that we can do. We can, we can bury it. We can just shove it down deep, but really I did some some research on rejection, even scientific research that was done um, by, by a doctor named Dr. Winch, where he did these MRI studies where he would take MRI, MRI pictures of the brain scans of the brain while rejection was happening, both physical pain and emotional pain, rejection. And what he concluded was that rejection and physical pain, they share the same neuropathways in the brain. And so the conclusion of his research was that as far as the brain is concerned, a broken heart may not be so different than a broken arm. And so our brain processes rejection as physical pain. And so it can become this wound that gets infected, you know, and, and we, we have things that we do with rejection because many times the pain is just too far. It just hurts too bad. The rejection, the abuse, the, the, the things that we walk through in life that many times what we do is we hide it away. We're just like, I'm going to stick this in a dark place and just kind of pretend like it's not there. But the problem with that is it doesn't get smaller. It actually gets bigger and everybody in your world, is tripping over it. Everybody, all of your friends can tell you not to mention that name or my friend is going to get really mad because you've hid it, you've hid it away or you can pass it off. This is what we see a lot of people do with their pain. They pass it off. They, they don't want to deal with it. So it's everybody else's fault. It's your fault that I'm a bad person. It's your fault that I abuse drugs. It's your fault that I cheated on you. And so we, we blame other people. So we, we, we can do that or we just carry it along. We're like, you know what? This is my burden to bear. I'm just going to suck it up. Right? I'm just going to suck it up and, and just carry this bitterness and it becomes a grudge. But the problem with the grudge is that your grudge will grow up <laughs> and it'll right. change your marriage. It'll, it'll, it'll change your personality. It'll change your parenting style. It'll change your, your, your financial habits and it'll change everything about you. And really the only option that I found in the book is that we lay it down. It's really the only option. And the, the, the beauty of this that God, that God showed me in the writing of this book was going back uh, to that verse in Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 and, and, other, and other times through Scripture is talking about Jesus. And it says that Jesus became 
And he says that he was the stone that the builders rejected. Mm. Now that same word is used, rejected. Jesus was rejected. And, but then it goes on to say that that has now become the chief cornerstone. So you think about rejection, something that was meant to be harmful and abusive and painful and hurtful, actually became foundational. It became the very thing that our faith is built upon. Because in, in Ephesians, it says that that stone became the cornerstone of the church, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in Psalm 118, it says that that cornerstone is actually rejection. And so if we'll do what Jesus did, Jesus knew rejection better than anybody. Jesus right. was rejected by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. He was re rejected by the Greeks. He was rejected by the Romans. He was rejected by the Jews. He was rejected by his own disciples. Um, he was rejected as he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he took rejection and built something beautiful out of it. And I just begin to see this picture of what if we didn't hide our pain? What if we didn't pass it off? What if we didn't um, tuck it away or carry it along? What if we laid it down and said, God, I don't know how you're going to turn this into beauty, but I believe that you can turn beauty into ashes into beauty and my morning into joy and just allow God to build something beautiful out of it. Mm. We're talking with uh, pastor and author John Chasteen, his book, Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. We're continuing a conversation with pastor and author John Chasteen. He is the author of Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts, an excellent book to help us consider how God wants to deal with those things that we would just as soon keep uh, buried. Uh, in the book, you uh, you write about when there's rejection, um, that there's restoration and redemption that God offers us. What do we do with that rejection when we get to the point you mentioned laying it down? What do we do with that yeah. in order to begin that, to experience that healing process that God always intends for his children? Yeah, I begin to see this really, this other picture in the New Testament that gives this beautiful picture of what to do with rejection. Um, and the Lord led me to, to John chapter 11, where um, Mary and Martha were rejected, in essence. Their brother Lazarus had died. They sent word to Jesus, who's their friend, by the way. It was Lazarus, Lazarus's friend. And they thought to themselves, surely if anybody can come and heal, Jesus, heal Lazarus, it would be his friend, Jesus. We've seen Jesus heal people. And we know what happened. Jesus sent word back and said, and, and well, he didn't send word back. He just told his disciples, no, we're not going. You know, we're not going. We're, we're going to stay where we're at and we'll go, go there soon. Four days later, he shows up and they, so he rejects them. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to reject your request. And, and they let us know, you know, what they felt about that. It says that Martha came out to meet Jesus and I can picture her with her hand on her hip, you know, and she says, Jesus, you should have been here. And she is, Telling Jesus her disappointment, you rejected me, you should have been here, and you can you can feel the pain in her as you read the scriptures on it. And and we can feel like that sometimes when when we feel rejected, we when we were raped, when we were abused, when we lost our job, when we filed for bankruptcy, we want to yell at Jesus and say, Jesus, you should have been here. And why weren't you there? 
if you would have been here, I wouldn't have gotten a divorce. If you were there, I wouldn't have gotten abused. But I love how she quickly pivots and she goes from blaming to the very next sentence. She says, but even now, and that's a really important phrase that we all make the transition in our mind when we feel rejected and abused by Jesus. We say, but even now, even now you can do something about this. And Jesus says to them very, very, very calmly, he says, take me, take me to him. So what Jesus does to us in our pain is he invites us to take him to that place of pain. Because what Mary and Martha did with their pain, Lazarus, is the same thing we do with our pain. We shove it in a dark place and we roll a stone in front of it. And this is exactly what they did with their pain. And it was a beautiful analogy in, the, in a physical picture of a spiritual truth, that's what I like to call it. It's a physical picture of them taking something that had died, something that was decaying, something that they once loved, something that hurt, and they put it in a cave, they put it in a tomb, and they rolled a stone in front of it for to just let it fester, to just let it decay. And this is what we do with our pain. And it becomes, it's one of the chapters in the book, it becomes the stench behind the stone. Mm-hmm. And we all have one. That's the thing is none of us are immune to this. We all have something that if we allow it to, it'll fester. It becomes the stench behind the stone. And Jesus says, take me to that place. And so Jesus is a gentleman. You know, he knows where your pain is at. And he knew where Lazarus was at. He didn't have to ask them. But he said, take me there. And if we're willing, and this is what Mary and Martha did, they escorted Jesus to their place of pain. And what Jesus was saying was, take me to the place that you gave up. You know, take me to the place that you lost hope. And we have to escort Jesus to that place. And when we get there, and you know, we know one of the shortest verses in the Bible is Jesus wept. And so what that shows us is that Jesus comes to weep alongside you. He, he, he knows your pain and he knows what you're going through. And so they get to this place of pain and Jesus says, roll the stone aside. And we know their response. Martha said, oh, Jesus, by now the stench has become horrible is the way she puts it. And because it was the stench, there was the stench behind the stone. And so, so Jesus asked them, and this is a really important part of our healing. Jesus asked them to roll the stone aside. Now, this is also interesting because just a short time later, Jesus would roll his own stone to the side. Jesus did not need their help to move this stone. He could have pointed his finger at it and moved it by himself. But for some reason, Jesus always involves us in our own healing. And there's something that we have to move, something that's heavy, something that is terrifying, something that's painful. It's talking to somebody. It's, it's going to a counselor. It's going to a pastor. It's, it's accessing that place of pain that's going to stink really bad as soon as you move the stone. And what, what Jesus is saying is if you'll do what you can do, I'll do what you can't do. So you can move the stone. You can't resurrect the dead body. I'll do that but you can sure move the stone out of the way. And if you'll show me your faith by moving the stone, then I'll resurrect something in you that has already died. And so Jesus involves us in this process of healing. He wants, he wants us to, to, to help the process of walking through this healing journey. We're talking about the book, half the battle healing your hidden hurts. My guest is uh, pastor, Dr. John Chasteen. I think for many of us, we want to be, uh, movers and shakers in the kingdom of God. We want to uh, uh, to take ground for the kingdom. And yet before that happens, as we've been discussing, God requires some internal work in us. Um, talk a little bit about the necessity of resolving these issues, bringing them before 
God allowing him to restore and redeem us uh, in order that we might move forward and take uh, take the ground that he intends for us. Going back to your analogy from uh, the Israelites taking Jericho, they didn't wield weapons. They simply yeah. raised their voices and the walls tumbled yeah. because they had done done something that God required of them prior to uh, approaching the city. Yeah, I think I think as, as Christ followers, that's really our duty on earth, right, is to take ground from the enemy, to take ground from the enemy for my kids, to take ground from the enemy for my spouse, to take ground for the enemy for financially, to take ground from the enemy for my city, for my neighborhood, for my church. And, and every day that looks different in how we walk that out. And in, in the book I go into a little bit, I love history, and I talk a little bit about World War One. And the World War One became known as the, the war from the trenches. It's where the, the 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 term trench warfare was even invented, because what happened is that they they were trying to take ground and they ended up facing weapons they had never faced. They it was the first war where machine guns were introduced. It was the first war where gas was introduced and warfare in in, in chemicals was introduced. It was the first tank. It was the first war where tanks were there. And so what happened is they faced weaponry they had never faced before, and they didn't know what to do. So what they do? They dug a trench, and they stayed in it. And as soon as they dug a trench, they stopped advancing. They stopped taking ground. And I think that many Christians are, are at this place where we face enemies we've never faced before. We, we have wounds. We, we've become wounded. We can't take ground anymore, and so we dig a trench and we just stay. But what they didn't realize is that whenever they dug those trenches, instead of being exposed to death quickly, they were actually just exposing themselves to death in a different way. Mm-hmm. And this is where th- this is where a term we all are, have heard of, trench foot, was invented because the trenches were disgusting. They were covered with feces and rats, and infestations and disease, and so they were dying a slow death. And they didn't even know they were dying. And I think that there's a lot of Christ followers out there that we've become complacent. We've dug trenches to protect ourselves, and we're dying a slow death. And we don't even realize we're dying. And we've stopped taking ground from the enemy for the from the, cap, the capital C church. In many ways, we've just stopped fighting. Um, we've become more concerned about ourselves than the army that we fight for. And, you know, I think it's such an important thing that we become uh, way more obsessed with advancing the kingdom of God than we are advancing our own kingdoms. And and that can even be a slippery slope uh, for pastors because pastors can can uh, take the bait of advancing um, their own church more than they advance the kingdom or advancing my own name and my own platform more than I'm advancing the kingdom. And. You know, Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles, chapter twenty is that battle of Jehoshaphat, and he and they go to face the enemy, and, he, and the Bible says that he sends the worshippers out in front. Yes, um, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, <laughs> can you imagine being the worshipper? Like, okay, you get in the front. We're going to go to battle. There's the enemy. We're going to start. And I would be thinking, okay, where's my sword? And Jehoshaphat's like, no, you don't get a sword. You just use your mouth. And um, they took ground from the enemy by just worshiping. And, and um, maybe the sharpest weapon we have is our tongue. You know, maybe maybe the tip of the spear is the tip of our tongue. And are we are we advancing? Are, are we taking ground from the enemy? Are we praying? Are we fasting? Are we worshiping? Are we doing the, the things uh, in the supernatural? And I think in a world we've become so obsessed with the natural and all the things around us and the injustice 
and the, the politics and the presidential election and all of the tension and all of those things are vitally important. But, but I'm convinced that an hour on my knees is more powerful than an hour on Facebook ranting. That's right. Um, and so we just need to learn how to fight differently. Um, we, we've lost the art of spiritual warfare uh, in so many ways. So that's sorry, I got on a soapbox there for a minute. But that's just I think it's I think we got to get back to the roots of who we are as Christ followers. Absolutely. We're called to take to take ground from the enemy. Well, I wish we had more time, but we don't. The book, once again, is titled Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. And I should mention that the appendix includes a leader's guide and a study guide that is absolutely worth taking on. Um, Pastor Chastine, thank you so much for talking with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and recommend it to our leaders, our listeners, rather, uh, published by Gateway. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was an honor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for Live from Seattle, our sister station to the north, KGNW, 820 The Word, Seattle's Christian Talk. So glad to have you with us as well. We are winding our way through some of the news headlines of the day. We're also going to talk with John Chastine. He's a pastor and the author of Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. He'll be joining us later this hour. Well, parents were victorious over the teachers union in New York City. From the story, in less than two weeks, Mayor Bill de Blasio went from shutting down in-person learning in the city's public schools to reopening in-person learning for a large share of students. The reversal shows how public pressure can, in fact, curb the power of the teachers union. And a New York City bar owner has been arrested for violating a social distancing order. Most complied, the story notes, the bar's owner was the first in the city to be arrested over the non-essential business lockdown rules there. While Republicans continue to gain in close House races uh, as recounts wind down, uh, from one story, Republicans trimmed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's 35-seat majority to just 12, with an additional two races outstanding in Iowa and New York and a runoff in Louisiana. Current ABC News projections put the partisan breakdown to 222 to 210, leaving Democrats with one of the smallest majorities in two decades. Well, kids are no longer asking for bikes and books. Instead, they want technology. The pandemic has made tech games even bigger than before, for good or for ill. I suppose. Well, New York congressional race um, where the Republican led with 12 votes is now in doubt after 55 apparently mislaid and never counted ballots are miraculously found. And a bipartisan group of senators has unveiled a $908 billion stimulus plan with no checks for Americans. $908 billion. Biden's education transition team leaders said the communist Chinese have really done some magical work. Coming to a school near you, one wonders. Well, Hillary Clinton is warning that Trump is not going to go away. And of course, she never did. James O'Keefe says of the left media, um, he crashes a CNN daily call with Jeff Zucker revealing these months of recordings I mentioned earlier. According to CNN, legal experts say that they may be this may be a felony. We've referred it to law enforcement, to which Donald Trump Jr. responded. It's amazing that CNN has no problem aggressively running with secretly recorded audio tapes of the first lady nonstop for weeks, but has a serious problem when someone does the exact same thing to them. 
Meanwhile, CNN has cheered China all throughout the pandemic. They now have questions for its handling of the virus. A little late to the game, but better late than never, I suppose. And a new report reveals the coronavirus was spreading in the U.S. by December 17th, weeks before China admitted people there were being infected. Blood collected by the Red Cross between December 13th and January 17th was later sent to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to be tested for antibodies to coronavirus. Well, the testing revealed antibodies to the virus that causes COVID-19 in 39 samples from blood donated between the 13th and 16th of December. Those donations were made in California, here in Oregon, and there in Washington. Well, under the heading of uh, education, a new Harvard study shows that there are dangers of early school enrollment. And in an unrelated study, the top 20 percent gets six times more benefit from student debt cancellation than the bottom 20 percent. Economists uh, Sylvan Catherine and Constantine Yelanis, they crunched the numbers to conclude that full student debt cancellation would be a highly regressive policy and reward $192 billion to the top 20 percent of income earners, yet just 20 billion to the bottom 20%. And in yet another bad idea, Europe charts a path for the U.S. to rejoin the nuclear deal with Iran. And the Iranian parliament has approved a bill to stop nuclear inspections. Perfect timing, at least if you live in Iran. Well, Cyber Monday sales reached $10.8 billion. This is the biggest ever e-commerce day. And Americans flocked to gun stores on Black Friday. Uh, November 2020 gun sales jumped 45.2% with almost 2 million more firearms sold. Defund the police. Well, Facebook's bots banned thousands of small businesses from advertising at the height of the retail season. The genius of the Internet is that it created a level playing field where one man shops could compete toe to toe with established players. Well, the evil genius of social media is that it allows established players to snuff out the one man shops before they have a chance to compete. And that's what happened uh, on Facebook. Well, in the annals of social justice, the caliphate. An NBA commissioner dismissed to China's human rights abuses as, well, just one issue. Of course, if you happen to be the subject of that one issue and your life is being severely curtailed, I suppose it matters. Uh, while lecturing Americans on racism, big business opposes a ban on using foreign slave labor. It's just, you know, one issue. Well, Britain's high court projects young children from uh, or rather protects young children from transgender chemical castration. This is Britain's high court. We'll keep our eye on what happens here. And San Francisco's mayor is warning that more restrictive action may come to a city after her uh, French laundry restaurant visit, uh, which, of course, uh, she was entitled to because she's a person of influence and power. San Jose's mayor attended a Thanksgiving party after telling citizens to cancel their big gatherings. Let me just review. If you happen to be a person of influence, um, also known as the elite, the coronavirus, for some reason, uh, exempts you from catching it. If you happen to be involved in a uh, protest that is approved by the elite, then you are protected from uh, COVID-19. But if you're in a church service, well, that's a whole different thing. COVID is um, focused on those who are in worship services. So uh, trying to keep the rules straight. Apparently, there is a political edge to COVID-19 and who's subject to um, the virus. Well, under the category of stranger than fiction, in a classic case of a lack of self-awareness, the director of Pennsylvania's racist Planned Parenthood has been hit with allegations of racism. 
Now, as an African-American woman, I refer to Planned Parenthood as racist because I know Margaret Sanger and that history. And while they would denounce it and just recently recognize that, well, yes, she was a eugenicist and a racist, they continue the same policies that have left the African-American community devastated. And I would go so far as to refer to it as a genocide. In other news, a Detroit Free Press column claims that COVID has turned breathing into a deadly event and all of us into potential serial killers. Wow. Even more scary, the guy who uh, penned this dribble was a federal prosecutor for 25 years. One observer pointed out that there's more breathlessness in the coverage of COVID-19 than there is from the disease itself. Well, this day in history, 1954, the U.S. Senate passed 67 to 22, a resolution condemning Senator Joseph McCarthy, a Republican from Wisconsin, saying he had acted contrary to senatorial ethics and tended to bring the Senate into dishonor and disrepute. 1859, on this day in history, militant abolitionist John Brown is hanged for his raid on Harper's Ferry the previous October. And on this day in history, 1957, the shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania, the first full-scale commercial nuclear facility in the U.S., begins operation. The reactor would cease operating in 1982. And on this day in history, in 1982, in the first operation of its kind, doctors at the University of Utah Medical Center implant a permanent artificial heart in the chest of a retired dentist, Dr. Barney Clark, who would live 112 days with the device. That uh, has come a long way since then. Well, as I mentioned yesterday, and it's being confirmed, President Trump hinted that he may launch a 2024 campaign to return to the White House as he continues to fight the 2020 election results and refuses to concede as president-elect, uh, presumed president-elect Joe Biden. It's been an amazing four years. We are trying to do another four years. Otherwise, I'll see you in four years, the president told supporters on Tuesday night at a White House holiday party for members of the Republican National Committee. Two GOP sources who attended the function confirmed the president's comments. Until now, the president has remained quiet about the possibility of running um, to uh, reclaim the White House in 2024. I don't want to talk about 2024 yet, he says, speaking to reporters on Thanksgiving. But behind closed doors, the president has told advisors that he wants to run again in four years and could potentially announce his bid before or even during Biden's inauguration on January 20th, according to uh, reporting on Monday from uh, Chief White House correspondent John Roberts. Well, such an announcement or even Trump's flirtation with a third White House uh, run would definitely put a damper on what was uh, thought to be a wide open battle for the GOP 2024 presidential nomination. And it could potentially freeze out early moves by other Republicans with national aspirations. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're also sitting in for Live from Seattle, our sister station to the north, KGNW 820, The Word. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, the word for the next few days. Glad to have you along for the ride, our neighbors to the north. Well, a lawyer for President Donald Trump's campaign said the team is preparing to file another lawsuit alleging that 40,000 people voted twice in Nevada which, if true, could potentially erase the Democrat presidential candidate Joe Biden's lead there. Well, Trump's attorney, Jesse Benal, speaking to Fox Business Wednesday, said that they found evidence of real voter fraud, including thousands and thousands of instances in Nevada, that will be submitted to a court 
in the Silver State. Well, there are instances of 40,000 plus people who voted twice in the election. He didn't provide a source, such as an affidavit or a whistleblower, for his claim, but he later said lawyers will present evidence to the court. It's not clear where the bulk of the alleged fraudulent ballots were cast in the state. Well, but all again, the president's attorney, one of them, who helped defend the retired Lieutenant um, General Michael Flynn, who's been pardoned, also said that some people who said they were recorded uh, as having voted via mail never received ballots and told Trump's team that they didn't vote. Well, Nevada Secretary of State, um, the, the office, hasn't yet responded to the request for comment, but has released few public statements since the November 3rd election in general. Well, several weeks ago, in response to allegations of fraud, Clark County Registrar of Voters Joe Gloria's office told the Associated Press that the Trump campaign's uh, complaints misstate and misrepresent evidence and claim they parrot erroneous allegations made by partisans without firsthand knowledge of the facts, end quote. Well, earlier this week, Nevada Republicans dropped a lawsuit that claimed that people were no longer live in the state legally casting ballots. It was later revealed that the address and zip codes in the lawsuit belonged to a number of military families and students who are legally able to vote in Nevada. So it continues. In another instance, by the way, a data scientist, Dorothy Morgan, said there was an inexplicable jump in voter registration with unusual addresses and incomplete information. In an affidavit, in that case, they did file one. She said she spotted an historically strange increase in voter registrations, missing the sex and age of the voter, as well as registrations where the uh, casinos and RV parks are provided as their home or mailing address in the 3rd Congressional District, which covers much of Clark County and Las Vegas. Well, this investigation found over 13,000 voters whose voter registration information revealed no sex, no date of birth. Not only does this mean we cannot verify whether these voters are old enough to vote, it's also historically strange. While one doesn't expect voter registration information to be perfect, it's very strange that there were so very, very few of these kinds of imperfect records with missing or invalid information until this year where there were 13,000 of them, she said, according to that affidavit. So the back and forth continues. Whether or not the outcome of the election changes ultimately uh, is one thing, but identifying voter fraud, if it actually exists or vote tampering or whatever uh, label should be put on it, is an important thing for elections moving forward either way. Well, President Trump announced last Wednesday that he pardoned his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, ending a years-long legal battle with the government that started with the Russia investigation. Remember that? Well, the pardon comes three years after uh, Mr. Flynn pled guilty to making false statements to the FBI regarding his contacts with Russian Ambassador uh, Kislyak. Well, Trump fired the retired three-star general after discovering that he made contradictory statements to Vice President Mike Pence about whether he had discussed sanctions with Kislyak. Well, the case against Flynn came from special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign's contacts with Russia, and Flynn was the only member of the uh, Trump administration to be charged as part of that investigation. Well, in January, Flynn requested to withdraw his guilty plea, and his February sentencing hearing was canceled. Uh, the Justice Department later requested that the case against Flynn be dismissed as Flynn's FBI interview in January of 2017 was untethered to and unjustified by the FBI counterintelligence investigation into Mr. Flynn and conducted without any legitimate investigative basis. Well, that's sort of where it uh, landed. Judge Emmett Sullivan, the federal judge overseeing that case, has yet to um, uh, has not yet ruled on whether the drop of the charges against Flynn would move forward. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler on Wednesday called the pardon undeserved, unprincipled, 
And one uh, one more stain on President Trump's rapidly diminishing legacy. Nadler is a Democrat. Uh, Nadler claimed Trump had dangled this pardon to encourage Flynn to backtrack on his pledge to cooperate with federal investigators, cooperation that might have exposed the president's own wrongdoing, end quote. He went on from there. But at this point, Mr. Flynn has been pardoned. Now, the editors of the Washington, or excuse me, of the National Review indicated that this was not only justified, it was um, an act of clemency that for national security purposes was the right thing to do. You can read that at uh, National Review if you're interested in the details. They did point out that President Trump's pardon of the retired general who fleetingly served in his first nas- as his first national security advisor was, in fact, a justified act of clemency. You don't have to be a fan of how Trump has wielded his pardon power, often recklessly and on behalf of friends and supporters, or believe that Flynn was a good choice for national security advisor or has conducted himself prudently and honorably the last several years. He hasn't to acknowledge that he that this is the case. Flynn should never have been the subject of an FBI investigation. The FBI's behavior in inv- interviewing Flynn was reprehensible and the pardon restores the appropriate balance of prosecutorial power which was put askew by the misconduct of federal district court judge Emmett Sullivan. So again, you don't have to be a fan of Trump and how he's wielded that uh, power to agree that this was the right decision on the part of um, Mr. Flynn. Well, one has to read uh, the uh, to the end of the Washington Post's recent editorial, Abolish the Electoral College, which has been a a campaign going on in the country for quite some time, before hitting the real reason the Post editors want to upend the longstanding constitutional institution. Mr. Trump's election was a sad event for the nation, the Washington Post notes. His re-election would have been a calamity, maybe or maybe not. Well, that's a matter of partisan perspective. Those who are genuinely concerned about the future of American governance will be calling to strengthen institutions that provide political uh, political stability, not destroy them. But when your concerns about American democracy are really just a euphemism for partisan power grabs, you end up making lots of sloppy arguments like this one that appeared in the Washington Post. It is alarming that a candidate came so close to winning while polling more than five million fewer votes than his opponents nationwide. The Electoral College, whatever virtues it may have had for the founding fathers, is no longer tenable for American democracy, which is, of course, a constitutional republic and not a democracy, which the founders uh, rejected. Well, the fact that the Electoral College doesn't align with the popular vote isn't alarming. It is the point. If you looked at the electoral map, how the majority of the country in the middle is red with the uh, the two borders, ours and the, those on the east, being blue. If the Electoral College synchronized with the outcome of the direct Democratic national vote tally every election, it wouldn't need to exist. It isn't a loophole. It is a bulwark. Well, the Electoral College isn't uh, exists rather to diffuse the very thing the Washington Post claims is most beneficial, namely the overbearing majority. That's what James Madison said, and that's in fact how he put it. If majoritarianism is truly always the best means of deciding an issue, then the Post would support a mere majority of states being able to overturn the First Amendment or decide abortion policy. I mean, why not? But if states still matter, if the Electoral College's virtues are far stronger today in an era when federalism is ignored and Americans are more likely to cluster in urban areas than it was in the founding generations when Washington was largely powerless, it's one of the institutions that makes a democracy, in quotes, tenable in a truly diverse and sprawling nation. Well, on the most basic level, the Electoral College helps compel presidents to govern nationally rather than represent a handful of states. We saw it when former Vice President Joe Biden was forced to temper his positions on fracking and defunding the police 
because he had to appeal to those outside urban areas. Uh, If he is to be successful, Biden has to govern in ways that are popular to diverse cultural and geographical areas such as North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Arizona, and not just California, New York, Seattle, and Portland. Arizona and not just California and New York. (laughs) It should also be noted that the system the Washington Post wants to um, nix has been the most stable in the world. A direct national poll would be a radical change, even by international standards. Most free nations don't have Democrat majority uh, votes for their um, executives. Parliamentary systems, for example, are not national polls. Um, And while I could go on and on, I think it's important to make the point that the Electoral College that is being and has been challenged is a bulwark against power grabs that should be upheld. Washington Post, notwithstanding. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live in Seattle. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Our friends from the north have gone. They leave at 530, so it's just us. Well, following the election, Facebook and Twitter haven't backed off their censorship practices in the least. In fact, they've pretty much doubled down, engaging in a blatantly politically biased effort to suppress any non-mainstream media stories that deal with election fraud. Using the excuse of righteously clamping down on fake news and misinformation, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's CEO, greenlighted the social media giant's latest speech-squelching algorithm, its break-glass plan. That's what they're calling it. Well, as the New York Times recently reported, it involved emphasizing the importance of what Facebook calls News Ecosystem Quality Scores, or NEQ. It's a secret internal ranking it assigns to news publishers based on signals about the quality of their journalism. Typically, the NEQ scores play a minor role in determining what appears or users uh, on users' feeds. But several days after the election, Mr. Zuckerberg agreed to increase the weight that, that uh, Facebook's algorithm gave to NEQ scores to make sure authoritative news appeared more prominently, emphasis added. Uh, the Times then uh, helpful uh, expl- uh, provided an explanation that constitutes authoritative news. The plan resulted in a spike in visibility for big mainstream publishers like CNN, The New York Times, and NPR, while posts from highly engaged hyper-partisan pages such as Breitbart and Occupy Democrats became less visible. Nothing hyper-partisan about The New York Times, of course. Well, there is at least one exception to the censorship. That would be China. Twitter merely labeled as sensitive a tweet from a Chinese communist uh, apparatchik that contains a false depiction of an Australian soldier preparing to behead a child. As Gary Bauer noted, even though Chinese citizens are banned from using Twitter, the tech platform allows communist leaders to tweet whatever they want while censoring legitimate news stories and almost anything President Trump says about the election. So literally, uh, we're talking about Facebook determining what news you can and cannot see. They're placing a value on the content. Uh, we are We and our humble shop can attest to Facebook's abusive censorship practices. Any commentary that does not uh, toe the mainstream media line is effectively fact-checked as false or misleading, and the offending article is, or the meme for that matter, is uh, removed and the rest of the, um, uh, the account's reach is throttled. So if you're trying to communicate with a wider world. Well, Facebook and Twitter have been able to get away with this blatant censorship, acting as publishers while being legally classified under federal law as a neutral forum like a public utility such as a phone company. Well, until this fraud is addressed and corrected, which Congress is considering, the best thing those interested in preserving free speech can do is to ditch Facebook and Twitter. 
as power lines. John Hindraker um, cogently uh, wrote some time ago in considering whether we should leave left wing social media platforms behind. I call President Trump's words addressed to the urban black audiences. What do we have to lose? Well, what is this Section 230 that exempts social media platforms from the kind of scrutiny and makes it a a utility, if you will, that goes beyond um, bearing any responsibility for what it publishes or chooses not to publish? Part of a 1996 internal law is now at the center of a debate over social media companies' power after the, the president signed an executive order. Uh, That was back in May that could remove some of their liability protections if they engage in selective censorship harmful to national discourse, which, of course, they have. Well, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act states that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information uh, content provider. Well, it's been pivotal in the rise of today's social media by allowing not only Internet server providers, but also Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and others to be shielded from liability from content posted on their platforms by third parties in most cases. Well, the president's executive order came shortly after Twitter attached fact check warnings to some of the president's um, warnings uh, himself. Section 230 was not intended to allow a handful of companies to grow into titans controlling vital avenues for our national discourse under the guise of promoting open forums for debate and then to provide those behemoths blanket immunity when they use their power to censor content and silence viewpoints that they dislike, the executive order states. Well, Section 230 has many defenders in its current state and the president's attempts to alter how social media platforms are regulated may be met with some resistance, but at least the questions are being asked. For example, the Electronic Frontier Foundation calls Section uh, Section 230 one of the most valuable tools for protecting freedom, uh, the freedom of expression and innovation on the Internet. But it is being challenged for reasons I've just mentioned. Well, meanwhile, the FCC chairman is proceeding with rulemaking to try to clarify what Section 230 relating to social media companies actually is. Um, Social media companies do not have a First Amendment right to do a special immunity denied to other media outlets, such as newspapers and broadcasters, he argues. Well, the FCC's chairman on Thursday last said that the agency is going to seek to clarify regulations affecting social media. This is a move that could lead to the powerful companies behind the platforms becoming subject to the same rules as other publishers without an executive order. Well, in the tweet Thursday, the commissioner, Ajit Pai, said that the FCC will initiate rulemaking to clarify the meaning of the section in the 1934 Communications Act after the administration uh, this year filed a petition contesting the legal shields afforded to social media companies, a move celebrated by GOP officials who believe social media is politically biased. Well, you don't have to believe it. It's just a fact that cannot be disputed. I started mentioning earlier in the program that Governor Brown is in the process of implementing coronavirus restrictions for 25 extreme risk counties. Uh, She said on Tuesday, or rather announced, 25 of the state's 36 counties are at extreme risk of the transmission of coronavirus and will face the most stringent of new restrictions for businesses and social gatherings for at least two weeks. Uh, The list named five more counties than originally outlined last week when the governor unveiled a four-tiered structure. Um, And counties are placed in different categories based on case-by-case test 
uh, testing and positivity rates with restrictions growing based on risk level. Now, virtually all the state's most populous counties, including Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, Marion, and Jackson, are in the extreme risk category. But the governor also added five others to that list on Tuesday after official cr- officials rather crunched the new numbers. Those are Crook, Hood River, Josephine Lake, and Morrow counties. Benton County, meanwhile, was downgraded to high risk under the latest calculations. While the designations carry significant weight, uh, banning indoor dining, shuttering gyms in most counties, for example, the state's application of the criteria wasn't immediately clear. Well, these more populous counties, labeled as extreme risk, are supposed to have at least 200 cases per 100,000 residents over the past two weeks, while counties with less than 30,000 residents are supposed to have at least 60 cases altogether. But the criterion also listed test positivity rates of 10% and higher as falling under extreme risk. 10 of the 25 counties with that designation appear to have positivity rates below the threshold that the governor herself had announced. So it's not altogether clear what constitutes uh, this, the status that she's extended. Well, spokespersons for the governor and the Oregon Health Authority that produces the data didn't uh, respond to questions about the test positivity rate and how it applies in these cases. But the new restrictions begin Thursday, the day after the president's, uh, rather the governor's statewide two-week freeze ends. They'll be in place from December 3rd through December 17th. The freeze banned indoor and outdoor dining statewide, but the new tiered system allows indoor dining in the three lowest tiers, while the highest risk counties can offer outdoor seating. Gyms in the three lowest tiers are allowed to reopen at limited capacity of up to 50 people. The state said it would examine and publish county data weekly, but determine whether counties are uh, reassigned to different risk tiers every two weeks. So there you have it. That's where we apparently Stand. Well, Governor Brown also released recommended budget, her budget and policy agenda yesterday. Um, She uh, is focusing on the key challenges facing Oregonians, the public health and economic impacts of COVID-19, a recovery from the devastating wildfire season, taking steps to end systematic racism and address racial disparities in Oregon. We'll tell you more about what the governor had to say when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. As we discussed uh, early on in this pandemic, prior to the announcement of a global lockdown, um, there has been an epidemic of loneliness, and the consequence is rather dire. We're going to talk about the loneliness solution with Jack Eason when he joins us tomorrow on the program. So I hope you will join us. Well, as I mentioned, Governor Brown released her recommended budget and policy agenda uh, this week, focusing on key challenges facing Oregonians. She said that 2020 has challenged Oregon in unimaginable ways. We've been tested to the core and the most vital needs of Oregon families, health, safety, education, housing, and the ability to learn uh, and earn a living have all been challenged in new ways. Uh, I have been awe-inspired by Oregonians who have stepped up at every turn to protect their friends, families, and neighbors. The compassionate spirit of our state has shined through. Oregon has proven to be a port in the storm. Uh, Through it all, she went on to say, we are determined to rise and rebuild. And as we do, we must ensure the future is a just one, that we create an Oregon where everyone has the opportunity to thrive where every voice is heard. Well, in 2020, the governor convened a racial justice council with leaders from Oregon's black, indigenous, Latino, Latina, 
Asian, Pacific Islander, immigrant, refugee, Native American, and tribal communities to develop investments and policy proposals to begin to dismantle systematic racism in Oregon. Those proposals are interwoven throughout the governor's recommended budget and policy agenda. Well, their main uh, budget and policy areas include ensuring all Oregonians' basic needs are met, which is fairly vague. She spoke about housing and homelessness. Her budget invests in housing and homelessness at $65.9 million uh, over 2019-2021 investment levels and calls on Congress for $350 million in rent assistance. She also includes a $20 million in homeowner assistance, $250 million in affordable housing developmental uh, funds in her budget as well. She has a COVID-19 pandemic response. In addition to applying for federal funds, the governor's budget invests $30 million in public health modernization to better prepare Oregon's public health system to respond to events like the current pandemic. Long-term care, her budget includes $17.9 million in investments and a range of strategies to protect senior living in assisted living and nursing homes from COVID-19 and health care in general. Oregon faces a $718 million budget gap for the Oregon Health Plan coverage, coverage which uh, provides an essential bridge to reducing health disparities by improving access to care and protecting low-income families in financial ruin. But you're talking about a $718 million budget gap. Uh, She also uh, addressed behavioral health, and her budget makes an investment in behavioral health and substance use disorder resources informed by the recommendations of the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. This in in light of the measure that was just passed in Oregon, allowing uh, the use and carrying of uh, small amounts of very lethal drugs. She also emphasized creating a future that we can be proud of, equity and education and our environment, building a stronger Oregon uh, requires dismantling the structures of racism. She said that K through 12 education, after a year in which uh, historic disparities in education have been exacerbated by the pandemic, her budget keeps Oregon's commitments made um, uh, earlier with some extensions. She is uh, looking at a state school fund at $9.1 billion and her budget stabilizes education by drawing $215 million from the Education Stability Fund for public schools. She wants to have uh, broadband expansion uh, investments, uh, about $118 million in broadband expansion statewide to connect an additional 50 urban and rural community Uh, communities across the state, early learning and childhood care, environmental justice, and so on is part of that budget, although there's not a a dollar amount uh, uh, tagged to either of them. She also wants to support small businesses and workers uh, and provide COVID-19 and wildfire and relief from uh, from the pandemic uh, recovery. She, uh, again, does not have numbers associated with those efforts although the budget does include $146.4 million to modernize the Employment Department's benefit delivery system and implement paid family leave insurance benefits for Oregon workers. As you might recall, early on in the pandemic, and perhaps even to this day, there was a significant delay in receiving unemployment benefits in the state of Oregon for those who were entitled to them. A wildfire recovery and preparedness, the governor's budget dedicates about $189.5 million to rebuild those communities who were impacted by the fires. And the governor's Wildfire Economic Recovery Council is also uh, going to ask for access to an additional $170 million of community development resources uh, for that purpose. Reforming the criminal justice system is on her, um, her list and improving systems to improve outcomes 
Uh, again, somewhat uh, vague, but the governor's budget and policy agendas make investments in core systems as she outlines them. So this is what the uh, governor announced earlier this week are her priorities, and the legislature is very likely to take this up. Um, when they reconvene, uh, it's not clear if they're going to have what they call the catastrophic session, which some suggested would be called in December, uh, but the legislature, legislature would be meeting on their biannual uh, schedule otherwise. Well, on November 22nd, 2020, the New York Times colonist Charles Blow unleashed one of the most bizarre tweets in recent memory. Stop doing gender reveals, he stated. They're not cute. They're violent. All we know before a child is born is their anatomy. They will reveal their gender. It may match your expectations of that anatomy, and it may not. If you love the child, you will be patient, attentive, and open, end quote. Well, this is a patently... Well, as Ben Shapiro put it, insane for a variety of reasons. First, the characterization of gender reveal parties, parties during which parents celebrate finding out whether their unborn child is a boy or a girl, as violence um, is in and of itself radically, well, rather nuts. Parents are excited to learn whether their child will be a boy or a girl. That is absolutely unobjectionable, but for an ardent fan of abortion on demand, such as Blow, to characterize a gender reveal party celebrating the sex of an unborn child as violent, while characterizing the in utero dismemberment of that same unborn baby as choice, is so morally benighted that um, it boggles the mind. Well, Blow's tweet goes further. The implication, he goes on to say, that parents are doing violence against their own children if they connect sex and gender is utterly anti-evidentiary. Sex and gender are interconnected. For nearly every human being born, biological sex will correspond with their development in the womb. And gender, contrary to the um, pseudoscientific paganism of the gender theory set, is not some free-floating set of biases we bring to the table. Males and females have different qualities and a variety of functions, attitudes, desires, capabilities. And every human culture, indeed, and every mammalian species, meaningful distinctions between male and female remain. To reduce children to genderless unicorns simply awaits hormonal, awaiting hormonal guidance from within piles absurdity upon absurdity. And, of course, Blow takes, uh, takes on patience. His take on it is not limitless. Presumably, should your daughter announce that she is a boy at the tender age of five, all measures will immediately be taken to ensure that she is treated as a boy uh, by those such as Blow. There will be no call for watching or waiting then. To do so would be yet another act of violence. Well, that's the culture that we're in. That's the arguments that are being made. Standing for the truth and what Scripture says we were designed to be is the challenge. I hope we're taking that challenge from our knees seeking marching orders. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. And I hope you'll join us here tomorrow with Jack Eason joins us, author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.